Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play, we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 219 is composer for Battlewake, among other things, Jeremy Nathan Tisser. Welcome to Sound of Play, Jeremy. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Oh, our pleasure. Uh, so I understand uh, this is your first time on the show. Um, looking at your history as a human being and as an artist. Uh, something of a, a child prodigy. You were a multi-instrumentalist by a very early age, and it looks to me, based on what I've read about you, that you kind of knew from almost forever that you were going to go into music, you studied music, and it's been a passion since you were like, you know, really, really little. Yeah, I've, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I started on piano when I was four years old, you know, and uh, we found out pretty early on that I had ADHD and was mm. not going to be sitting still to practice scales anytime soon. Right. <laughs> so uh, we gave up on that uh, after about four years. Um, I still understood how piano functioned and what its purpose was. I just didn't enjoy it enough to right. sit there. And then I found out about the drums and I learned about this magical thing where you can play rhythms and use two hands and two feet all at the same time doing different things and that was just you know that solved all my problems <laughs> Match made in heaven yeah i've heard a, i've heard this a lot uh, drumming being a really popular pastime especially for or a, a discipline for kids with adhd and other um sort of you know uh spectrum related disorders and things like that it seems to be like a yeah, like an amazing therapy as well as a as a kind of focus. It is. It really makes you, um, well, focus is the right word. You have to be able to pay attention to multiple things mm. simultaneously and make sure everything is doing what it's supposed to. Your right hand is playing at the right volume on the right instrument doing the right rhythm while your left hand is playing a different volume mm. and then sometimes multiple volumes with ghost notes versus accents on a snare drum. And then you have to have the control to bring them together and be able to count at the same time. And if you're doing sync playing any syncopation, you know, then it's it's just a whole nother ballpark. So I, I could definitely see how for someone on the spectrum that would be a great challenge to make them really just focus in. For me, just staring at lines on a page, like just the basic scale uh, when I was younger. Actually, if you don't mind, I'll go into something a little personal that I don't really sure. talk about. Mm. Um, when I was in middle school, I don't remember what it was called, but I was diagnosed with a processing disorder. Uh -huh. uh, the words words on a page would like move around and I couldn't focus on them. Okay. Um, so 
to me, like reading books, reading contracts, even reading music notes was mm. in, it was hard. It was insanely hard. And it's the reason why um, drums were so easy for me. I, I'm not going to say easy, but easier. Like it right. came easier to me uh, because the hi-hat is on one line and all you have to do is look at the groupings of notes and know what that rhythm is. And then mm. I can play that. So anything that was put in front of me for sight reading, I was able to do. Um, but learning about scales and individual notes and that was just, it wasn't until college that I really picked up on it. Um, and I think the reason I went into film scoring, one of the reasons was other than the fact that I realized, holy cow, you can do this for a movie. It was that looking at a full score meant I'm not always looking at one line at a time uh, when I'm conducting. Right. I have to be able to look up and down across this whole thing and know where I am at any given time and be jumping around. And then, you know, so anytime I have to focus on too many things, I'm in the zone. <laughs> I see. So, yeah, uh, looking at your IMDb, you've got uh, almost uh, 30 credits. But I know that as well as all that work that you've done off your own back, plenty of films and TV and shorts and things, uh, you kind of after studying uh, technically uh, and, uh, you know, in a in a in an educational environment you've also done a lot of uh, work in assisting and supporting sort of established artists in film and, and games and things like that i'd say probably my first real assistant job was on the game dragon age 2 yes um, we're gonna hear about that later on i will save that for later then <laughs> yeah that's cool uh, um how about uh, we'll talk now a little about uh, the first track we heard. So we're going to kind of um, we're going to we're going to conclude this show with a track from the game, which you're ostensibly here to talk about, which is Battle Wake. And you've uh, you've kindly brought a, a sort of uh, a, a debut, a, a exclusive piece for us. Um, yes. Battle of the Frozen Bog. Now we're going to close the show with that, and I think it's just a it's such a fun piece to close the show with as well. Um, but. <laughs> we can kind of trace your career in terms of working with these guys um, and uh, working in VR back to the project holodeck day. So we open the show with welcome to planet shade uh, from uh, a part of this project holodeck. So can you explain sort of what that, what that was all about part of USC interactive media? Sure. So uh, to take it even before project holodeck shade yeah. is the first VR game I ever worked on. Um, it was 2011. Right. Oculus wasn't even a thing at all. And no. Palmer Lucky was building headsets uh, for the Mixed Reality Lab. So I, I had the opportunity, thanks to my teacher, who was Gary Scheinman at the time. Wow. Um, yeah. Gary connected the game students with the music students. And the game students pitched their games to us. And we got, had the opportunity to sign up for a maximum of three games. And we could pitch demos. And then the game director would listen to all the demos and select the composer that they liked the best. And that's how you would get the game. Mm, right. Fortunately, I was the only person that saw the vision for this virtual reality project. Um, it was essentially you got to explore an alien world and it was an animated style. So and it was kind of like a Disney Imagineering-esque type project. Right. And I thought that was like you know one of the things that i came to usc to learn to do was to write uh music for a for attractions and got the job and i started writing all these orchestral pieces for it that was just this beautiful thing and at the time it was a bicycle helmet with basically ski goggles that had 
um, a display in them. And then on this helmet was a cable that connected to a laptop that went into your backpack mm. that you wore. And out of the backpack was a giant bundle of cables that went off screen or off stage to another computer. Yeah. So you had to have two people walking around with you at any given time. One person to guide and escort you, and the other person was to uh, move the cables out of the way so Entirely you didn't hurt convenient. yourself. Welcome to the future. Yeah, exactly. Um, before Oculus Quest, before HTC Vive, the problem was you couldn't be in this headset for longer than five minutes before you wanted to throw up. <laughs> they hadn't figured out uh, any of the motion stuff right. yet. It was, yeah, and they hadn't, they didn't understand, we didn't understand yet that the, that the, the headset had to be moving naturally because you're never 100% still, no. right? Yeah. Even when you're standing still, the world is moving, mm -hmm. your body is shifting a little bit. And so the way they prevented motion sickness was they figured out we have to compensate for that. Yeah. We hadn't figured that out yet. Nope. <laughs> right. So um, the, yeah. So the horizon's constantly slightly tilting and shifting and people's brains are freaking out exactly yeah their, their, their heads are bobbing about even when they they feel like they're not and yeah it was actually the other way you it was actually the other way you'd be moving a little bit here and there, kind of like on a boat but what you would see didn't reflect what you would feel okay right okay yeah it's, it's like when I'm you're on a cruise fortunate. ship and you're down in your room <laughs> yeah i'm very fortunate and i don't get uh, motion sickness from from video games and i'm 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 very, very happy about that because it would have been a yeah a friend of mine gets it quite badly with first person stuff and even some third person stuff let alone vr and uh, <laughs> he, he's been apart from some very low frame rate stuff and stuff with very limited field of view uh like goldeneye we used to play back in the day he's barely been able to enjoy the kind of the 3d revolution of video games in many ways because it just makes <laughs> him want to throw up so uh, really yeah, so that really sucks yeah i've told him to steer oh well clear of oculus and all those all those things <laughs> yeah so planet shade um as yeah. a fine way to open the show um and all i will say really yeah. quick on on shade yeah. that is actually the game where i met james Iliff, who is the right. co-founder and chief creative officer of servio yes james and i were on the project together and that's where we met and we would we were attending weekly production meetings there and we became really close friends from shade so our relationship goes back before project holodeck but right. that shade is the project because of my relationship with james and he's he's such a fan of music he actually almost went to school for a performance piano he ended up choosing film and video games instead uh, um, but he's good enough on piano that he could have done that. Wow. So we bonded over this. Great. And that's essentially what brought me into Project Holodeck and started this whole thing. Does that make it slightly more intimidating, uh, writing music for somebody who's also so talented in that respect? Or is it actually just really helpful? I think it depends on the person. In James's case, it's really helpful because um, he respects music enough to understand what kind of work goes into it on my end yeah. and then he so he gives me a little bit more i don't want to say freedom but a little bit more leeway and understanding yeah. when i'm trying to do something that's almost an impossible ask right. <laughs> he's very understanding of it and he's always willing to work with me but he just he knows how to make sure that i push myself further every time 
Gotcha. You know, and, and he is not afraid to tell me when it's not enough. And he's able to pinpoint in a piece of music what it, what exactly it is that's not working. And then he's able to tell me how what he actually wants it to be so I know how to fix it. So our conversations are way more intuitive, I think, in this right. case. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay, so as always with composer guests, uh, we've asked uh, Jeremy to kindly pick the entire track list for this podcast and we've interspersed Jeremy's own work with some selections from other games that, uh, that he's admired and, and been inspired by. Now this one interests me, uh, I love this track anyway, uh, we covered this game on, on our sister podcast, Kane of Rinse, we did a deep dive review of it not so long ago, um, and I suppose this is actually, uh, as this, this is very much Mick Gordon's Piece, but it's actually a, a kind of an interpretation of the original Robert Prince uh, Doom music. The note that you've given us is uh, this track is the reason that you bought a nine-string guitar for Battlewake, which is uh, which is the recent release. Now, as a non-muso uh, technical expert, just somebody who loves music rather than understands it, I when I hear this piece, I don't really know what I'm hearing other than some you know some very uh, kind of treated. Uh, sounding guitars and stuff so the, how would i have even known that this was a nine string guitar and uh, what what gives it away and and why was it this piece in particular that made you think i need one of those well when when i first heard the doom score um it was maybe a few months before i got started on Battlewake, so i was like listening to it and mick was port pushing out these music videos for some of his tracks, including at Doom's Gate. Mm. And I saw the guitar. Oh, okay. So I, I actually saw what he was using. Right. And then I, I, um, and I also at GDC a couple of years ago, went to hear his talk on the score. And he mentioned about the nine string guitar okay. and the reason that he went with something so ridiculous. And I thought <laughs> it was just, it, it's one of those things, you know, with having a metal background, you know, yeah. we used to make fun of people that would pull out things like a nine string guitar because <laughs> yeah. realistically, you know, give that string to a bass because it's a bass string. Right. <laughs> it's, okay. just, yeah, yeah. it's so silly to have a nine string guitar. It's so low. You can't even tune it well. <laughs> <laughs> and yet. <laughs> and yet it was perfect yeah. <laughs> for for video games and fantastical things. And when when you every instrument, every note has a purpose behind it um and with mick he said that he wanted you were going down into the depths of hell right so a nine string guitar is something that's so ridiculously low and it's just not something you normally hear and i thought that was a really interesting interpretation for the instrument and it and it brings a new color to something that otherwise had been done, you know, I mean, Hans Zimmer used the electric guitar a bit on Pirates of the Caribbean. Mm. And I wasn't, even though I, I, we all knew we wanted guitars, drums and orchestra, and then big percussion, we didn't want to just copy what everyone else had done. Um, and so when I heard what you could do with a nine string guitar, I went, Oh my God, that's, that's what I need. <laughs>
Doom's Gate there, of course, by Mick Gordon from Very Doom, as we call it here, a 2016 game. We're all looking forward to the new one, Eternal, coming soon. Hopefully that will come complete with another banging soundtrack. I'm not even a metal guy, Jeremy, but uh, I feel like one when I'm listening to that soundtrack. It's, uh, it's so good. <laughs> one, of the, one of the many air-punching tracks you've brought us for this show. Next up, we have one of your project holodeck pieces now this has got a really inter uh, interesting production behind it so zombies on the holodeck you've given it uh, for want of a better descriptor an old timey sound um what was what was this for for those who don't know and how did you make it yeah i'm glad you caught that <laughs> that was 100% intentional yes um the game was this was the second game for project holodeck it's kind of started as like a side project while the main team was working on wild skies oh. and james was like james came to me and was like i have this really cool idea what if you could play in a black and white 1950s style horror film where you kill zombies yes and it was in vr where you're obviously like you could walk around this little courtyard area and just kill zombies um, this is obviously before raw data, before the new Walking Dead game that's coming out. Yeah. Um, so, and actually, Zombies on the Holodeck was the precursor to raw data. The gameplay mechanics all started here. But so we wanted a game that was in black and white and had that 1950s feel. And we actually went through and listened to horror film scores from the 40s and 50s maybe it's cheesy to us today but it's also nostalgic and there is a reason that that had that it evoked terror back then so we wanted to go with that vibe so you've got the organ you've got kind of the over-the-top orchestra and then we decided to run it through an analog tape emulator to make it sound like it was recorded in mono on tape I back see. in the day <laughs> Right. Is it as simple as, uh, I don't mean to undermine uh, the effort, sure. put in, is it as simple as pressing a button and saying, make this sound like it's from, from this time? <laughs> or is there a bit well, more to it? <laughs> I mean, there's plugins you can run. This, we used a plugin for this, and uh, you just fidget with the settings to get it right. Uh, right. It's, mm. Yeah. It's not super complicated, you know, but we obviously didn't have access to a tape machine, so we did. <laughs> yeah, <really> yeah, <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. Pleasing results. Anyway, let's hear it. Uh, main theme from Zombies on the Holodeck. Oculus Rift title project from 2013. Uh, for those who don't know, I get it's familiar, unfamiliar to me. I'm, I, I got to admit, Project Holodeck in a nutshell. What was that? What was the the purpose and and what was that all about? Project Holodeck was an advanced games project uh, from USC, the University of Southern California, and this was Nathan Burba's uh, basically his master's thesis. Right. Um, project Holodeck became the precursor to Servios. It was Nathan Burba, Alex Silkin, and James Eilith, and a few other people that still work at Servios today. Um, but those are the three co-founders. 
So this is kind of where they met and they came up with the concept. At the time, uh, we had built a hardware system where we took, and it was going to be a hardware and a game. So Project Holodeck was like this all-inclusive thing. You had a bicycle helmet with a PlayStation Move controller attached to the top. Okay. Then you had, we're going back to the backpack thing. We had yep, a backpack yep. with a laptop in it. Mm -hmm. And then a Razer Hydra was stamped to the front of your chest on this vest thing. And the controllers were left and right. And then you had those old ski goggles would yeah. come down off the helmet. So this was Project Holodeck. They Frankensteined what is essentially an HTC Vive right. back in, 20, in 2012. That's um, 2000. Cool. Yeah. So it was before we started this before the Kickstarter went live for Oculus. But the project itself really got going afterwards. Um, so we had a 12 foot by 12 foot space and we had two people in these two 12 foot by 12 foot spaces next to each other. And we'd throw them into a game and you could play zombies on the holodeck together. You could play wild skies together. And then they had this demo room set up with a little bar table and then two lightsabers and you could lightsaber duel together seven years ago. <laughs> That's amazing. Have any of the interactive elements of those uh, of that project been made available for modern VR headsets or is it all locked in in its own sort of time capsule? I think they're locked in. Well, actually, so Wild Skies, which I did not include music for mm -hmm. today, but Wild Skies was the other game. It was a basically you were on a pirate ship sailing through the skies and going on adventures. And if you're familiar with Battle Wake, you can start to understand yeah. where we got the idea from. So sure. this all... so. Um, Wild Skies kind of was the thing that started Battlewake and Zombies concept. on the, the Proof of Concept, yes. And Zombies on the Holodeck was the Proof of Concept for Raw Data and yeah. then eventually The Walking Dead Onslaught. Yeah, absolutely right. Uh, we got, yeah, we got some tracks from Raw Data and, uh, and that aforementioned piece from Battlewake coming up, but uh, in the meantime, we've got a piece from one of the, uh, one of the great should we say former game composers? I don't know if he's going to do any more game composition, maybe if he gets the right <laughs> offer. Uh, but he's kind of, he's doing okay for himself. He's quite busy. Uh, Michael Cicchino, this is from uh, the early 2000s now, Medal of Honor Frontline. So is this the kind of thing that you actually enjoyed playing way back then? Or is this just uh, a case of admiring the top tier orchestral composition of Michael's? I'd probably say it's more of just admiring the top tier. Uh, I, believe it or not, was never much of a gamer. Um, I grew up on the Nintendo systems. Yeah. And when PlayStation came out, my parents said, the games that are out there are too violent, so we're not getting you that. Oh, okay. Right. <laughs> so the only time I ever got to play PlayStation was um, when I'd go to my friends' houses, <laughs> and they would always want me in every game we played. So I just never got turned on to it because of that. Uh, um, that's a shame. But yeah, I guess I you, used to, you used to end up going home kind of wired, you know, have, having that. Because <laughs> you, you did, if you didn't get, it's like, um, it's like kids who aren't allowed sugar going around to a house where they ply you with chocolate and, and pretty sweets. much. <laughs> yeah. So you come home like, wow, shaking. <laughs> um, yeah, no, that's, uh, that's cool. So, but yeah, so you, you've admired Michael Giacchino as a composer. I do. And I, I just, you know, I listen to his game scores and they're similar to tying it back into Servios because <laughs> I just have too many stories there. 
it, it reminds me of the conversations James and I have where we've decided with starting with raw data, we don't want to just make games that sound like games and feel like games. We always wanted to do something that felt cinematic, right? Because mm -hmm. this is VR. You're not sitting on the couch with your screen 10 feet away from you. You're up, you're, you've got a headset on and you are in the world. And for me, Michael's stuff is just, it's, it's beautiful. You know, it's Medal of Honor. It's a war game, but the main theme doesn't really take you to that big, bold, you know, bomb and jun, 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 jun that everyone does today. Yeah. Instead, he goes the other direction. And I just I think there's not enough of that. And I personally love it. And it's one of my favorite themes. <laughs>
That was the main theme from Medal of Honor Frontline, which was the console kind of incarnation of uh, Medal of Honor Allied Assault. It was a, a, a relative game. We covered Medal of Honor Allied Assault on Kane and Rince some time ago. We haven't covered Frontline. We probably won't realistically, but you'll probably remember that listener from PS2, GameCube and or Xbox from back in the day. And uh, you'll know the work of Michael Giacchino. I think you can hear there uh, that was certainly uh, Medal of Honor came out of uh, the sort of um, the Band of Brothers thing, which obviously was involving Spielberg as an executive producer. And there was the Saving Private Ryan connection and the John Williams connection. And therefore, Michael Giacchino going on to write music for a Star Wars film kind of all ties together nicely, uh, which we've heard. Now, Jeremy's next pick from his own work now this is a game that uh, unfortunately i have to admit i don't have an htc vive or an oculus rift i don't even have a psvr i have no vr in my life i'm not i'm not a wealthy man um but it's becoming more affordable uh, so hopefully someday uh, and looking at this uh, experience raw data this is absolutely the kind of thing i would gravitate towards if i did have a vive or a rift it's uh, available right now you can on steam and presumably elsewhere as well uh, and i'm looking at the screenshots and thinking yeah i could i could definitely get into this so this this is a servios game and uh, it's a clearly a sci-fi shooter within vr um so tell us a bit about the game and the music that you compose for it because there's some really the thing i love about this looking at it on on your soundcloud is some of the credits the different instruments and and stuff that you included in this music including you've got a didgeridoo and you've got a throat singer and you've got a blaster beam <laughs> so <laughs> tell us all about raw data raw data was the flagship this was how, we're, how we wanted to come out and say this is how we define vr mm -hmm. right this is what we feel vr needs to be we went to every 1970s and 1980s even some 1990s science fiction movies, all the ones we grew up on. And we said, if we could make a video game that made us feel reminiscent of all of these, I'm talking Alien, Total Recall, and we even went to Independence Day, um, Star Wars, a little Star Trek. And we said, okay, if we could make a game, a sci-fi game that feels like one of those, how would we do it? And the score played a really big part of that. Uh, basically, James came to me and said, we need the score to feel like any one of those and be able to stand on its own. So I'm like, okay, Jerry Goldsmith, James Horner, John Williams, you know, and then put Jeremy Tisser somewhere there. <laughs> it was a very tall ask. And I decided the way to do it was we needed a blaster beam. We needed to get <laughs> unique and creative. <laughs> yeah. Um, I ended up tracking down uh, Craig Huxley who played the blaster beam on Star Trek, the motion picture for oh, Gary wow. Goldsmith. Okay. So we actually Creme got de la Craig Creme blaster beam. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so we got Craig and the, and that blaster beam, the one from Star Trek, the motion picture. Awesome. We've got, yeah, it was just standing in the room with that was just, you know, it was a mind trip. <laughs> that, that thing is, is so cool. Yeah. Wow. You've, uh, also, you've got, as I say, you've got, uh, you got Steve Sklar who performs, uh, performs throat singing. We featured a little throat singing on the show before. It occasionally comes up in game soundtracks. It was used on um, Operation Flashpoint some years ago. That was like uh, Tuvaluan throat singing or something. So again, what um, and, and for those who um, don't know what 
what throat singing is even and 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 have you got it blended with the didgeridoo because there's a kind of harmony between those two kind of sounds yeah that's that pretty much was the thought so this this track that you're gonna hear um was from the final section of raw data that we created so quick storyline raw data we made a 10 minute demo that was launched on steam early access blew up became the first vr game to break the million dollars in one month mm. it you know i I'm, i don't know if you remember all the craze about raw data back then um so we decided okay um the game blew up everyone loves it let's expand it so they made three new environments um one of which was a botanical gardens where there was this entombment chamber with a giant Buddha in the middle of it. And it was supposed to be, I don't want to spoil the story of the game because no, no. it's actually a really dark story and it's really cool. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Mm. Um, but it's supposed to be a place of evil, but they don't describe it as that. So it's a whole thing to it. So we decided the throat singer and the didgeridoo and some percussion was going to be very reminiscent. And then um, we have some horror vocals in one of the other tracks for that. Mm. Um, but this track is meant to be played um, after you've beaten that level and you come back out into the botanical gardens with these beautiful trees and all this stuff and robots are coming at you. It's yeah. kind of like the, the finale section of the botanical gardens.
that was Watson Genomics by my guest Jeremy Tisser, and that's from Raw Data, which you can, as I say, you can still find it on Steam. It's got uh, really healthy uh, review scores. Always nice to see. You can see it's got an 87 on Metacritic, which is, uh, yeah, it's very healthy. Uh, I think some VR stuff tends to get more kind of tepid or, or mixed reviews than that, and um, that must put it up as one of the more highly rated full-blown VR experiences around still. Uh, even though it's, I guess it's been around for a couple of years now. Is that 2017 release? Yes. Yeah. Two years now. Mm. Now you mentioned your first gig, your first paying job was this earlier on uh, EA's Dragon Age 2 for Bioware with Enon Zur, who's a former guest of ours as well. Uh, he did a special interview extra podcast with us. Check that out, listener. It's on the feed that this is. Or you can get it from our website, canorince.com. Uh, so yeah, Dragon Age Two, uh, Rogue Heart. So this is this is also a track with vocals. Uh, so how did you come to be involved with uh, Dragon Age, and uh, and what was your role within it? I am from Los Angeles, born and raised, and I've known Enon Zur since I was about four or five years old. Wow. Um, he, yeah, he actually played the organ at my synagogue on <laughs> Saturday during services every Amazing. week. So I grew up in elementary school there going and he was always there. So at all the bar mitzvahs that I attended growing up and everything, he was always the organist. And this oh. is before I knew what he was doing. Yeah. Though at the time he was writing the music for Digimon and some of the Power Rangers shows. And did he bring and... those uh, pieces to the synagogue? Or <laughs> <laughs> I think he recorded them at the synagogue. No. <laughs> um, so... I knew him from there. My brother, who's about three years older than I, he's also a musician. He is actually a cantor, Jewish clergy. He's the guy that leads the synagogue in the, in the prayers themselves. And uh, he was always fascinated by music in the synagogue. So he would go up every Saturday and just bother Enon until, <laughs> until they would just let him in there. And so yeah. he would just go and Enon was always super nice to him and would always let him come in and watch while he was playing. Fantastic. Um, I mean, you've met Enon, you know, he's just a sweetheart of a man. Seems to be. Uh, yeah. Really cool. So, my, you know, my brother would go up and just sit there next to him and watch. And, uh, eventually when Enon left, my brother took over for the keyboard job playing oh. organ at the temple. Um, and he learned from him and Enon uh, taught my brother about Cubase and MIDI programming and all that stuff. And while my brother was busy learning the things I needed, I was out playing drums and metal bands. <laughs> nice.
also, when I was in college, my brother, and I switched from music business to film scoring, my brother said, have you called Enon yet? And I didn't even remember about him. And he, I go, no, why? And he goes, Enon's like big time game composer. You need to call him. So I said, okay, picked up the phone. I called him. He said, you completely remembered me. He said, come right over, you know. So I went over to his new studio in Encino and sat there with him. And I said, hey, can I intern with you? And he goes, you know, I, I don't actually have any assistants or interns. I have a tech and an orchestrator. But because I've known you, why don't you come by? You can run hard drives. You can meet me at sessions. You can pick up clients. And he basically, just because I've known him for so long, he let me help him whatever wow. he needed. So. Awesome. Um, and he, he let me put an IMDb credit for, for that because I did get to drop off hard drives for it. I picked up some clients on the game. I watched him write some of the music and I just remember it being incredible. It was one of my first scoring sessions was a song by Florence and the Machine that he got to yeah. arrange for, for the game. <laughs> what an education. I mean, it, it, I guess if, if you didn't know up to that point that this was what you were going into, was it, this must have just sealed the deal. I think so. Yeah. I mean, Enon is just, ah, he's so good. I, there's one time I went to his studio and this was way after helping him out. This was just a couple of years ago. Mm. I called him up to, to just catch up and he brought, invited me to the studio and we're chatting. He goes, okay, I have to leave in about 45 minutes for the airport to fly to Macedonia for a scoring session. And I have to write a, a cue before I go, but you're welcome to stay and watch. I'm like, okay. So I'm sitting there. And he literally just pulls up his game Bible, opens up uh, Cubase, or was it, I think he's in Cubase, mm. and just starts writing. He just reads through it and he goes, okay, it, it needs to be this theme. And he's out loud telling me what he's doing and how he's doing it. And he plays everything in, in one single pass. The strings, he just plays it in. The melody puts, plays it in. Counter melody in the French horns, puts the percussion in for a jungle feel wrote the 60 second cue, checked the, the make sure that it loops well, and then done, sent it off in like 40 minutes. It was <laughs> mind blowing. So what we've learned here is that Enon Zor just knocks, he just bashes it out. He's just, he's like, he's just a super, he's, he's, just, he's, he's just, just not even paying any attention. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine no, what he can do when he is paying attention. Well, yeah. No, <laughs> so some people are just, yeah, it's, it's interesting because I, I, I do, um, I tend to ask, composers we have on here like kind of what's your what's your process do you start with sitting down at a keyboard or a piano do you start at a computer um do you just is, are you somebody who wakes up in the night and sings melodies into a into your iphone and records them or yeah. what, what's your kind of thing i take it game by game uh i i think with raw data it was you know whenever a melody popped up i'd run to the piano and write it down and then I'd like figure out how everything needs to fit together. And I did that because they wanted that 1980s retro nostalgia. Yeah. So I figured if that's the case, then I need to write it the way they did. So go to the piano and handwrite everything. Mm -hmm. um, but with Battlewake, it was a completely different beast. We did not have the specific instructions. I went off concept art because the levels weren't even built yet. Sure. And so it was just concept art and discussion and then playing the demo and then i had to go home and write the whole score from that so with that it was yeah. more i needed to make myself get inspired so we started with percussion and just me and a couple of friends went over to another friend's studio and 
pulled out all his percussion gear and the three of us just jammed for eight hours. Um, nice. And that's, and that's how Battle Week started. Um, so I think, you know, just, it really depends on the project, what, how far along they are when I get brought in and being able to adapt to any situation. Like having seen Enon Zur working at that pace, obviously he's older and more experienced than you, but did that put any, does that put any pressure on you to think, oh, I sh- you know, I should be able to do whatever I'm doing quicker or do you, is it a case of some pieces come instantly and some take weeks or do you just think maybe by the time you've been doing it as long as him, you'll just be able to do what he did that day and uh, just, you know, just knock it out and for you to be, you know, thoroughly happy with the result. I actually quit after that. Battle Week's my last game. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, it. It, <laughs> it, it opened my eyes to the work process, at least that work process and how his brain functions. You know what I mean? Uh, he was well into this game already. I think he had already written yeah. like a, something like an hour or so of, of music. Course. So, so his at that was point, already kind of decided. And, it yeah. was already dialed in. He already knew what theme he needed and what variation before he wrote because the, the, the document he had listed, it was like a half a page to a page for every piece of music that he needed to write. Um, okay. And not every game is like that. I, no. I called Gary Scheiman shortly after that to ask him about his process because i was like this is that is so much more detailed than anything i have done and he goes i've had game and he told me that he's had games where they sent him very detailed documentation like that and he's had games where they give him nothing yeah but and he has to write like 90 minutes of music and basically figure it out um yeah like a super vague outline of of what it's going to be kind of thing yeah, exactly that's, that's also something i've heard talking to composers for some years now yeah like you sometimes you'll you'll work uh spoke to nanita desai recently about working with sam barlow and they pretty much actually sat down and came up with characters together and actually you know talked about their backstories and and all this kind of stuff whereas other wow. Other other processes I've heard, it's like yeah, you get the you get the same kind of back of the box quote that that, that the punters <laughs> get when they buy the game. Like just make something that sounds like this year and this kind of setting. Yeah, so yeah, it sounds like it can uh, vary quite wildly. It can. I mean, and again, even within Servios directly, that raw data, we knew what every section was. We knew what we wanted to do. Yeah. We knew how it needed to function. We knew what inspirations to draw from for which environment. With Battle Week, we had none of that. <laughs> it was okay. write me a pirate score. <laughs> <laughs> right. So tell us, uh, we've got this second piece from Raw Data, uh, which is also including some dialogue, which is always cool. Sometimes uh, our, my co-host uh, Ryan makes these incredible mega mixes of the year in games music from different years going all the way back. Uh, and he sometimes uses some dialogue from the game to, to sort of, uh, you know, yeah, like um, spruce it up a bit, enhance it. And in this case, we have some dialogue from this piece, Adam X10 and Finale. Uh, and uh, so I want to ask you about that. And then I also want to ask you about um, the one of the other musical credits. I don't know if we hear it here, but we got Shakuhachi performed by Rachel Mellis. I don't know if that's on this piece, but it's on the uh, it's on your credits for the soundtrack. So I need to know what that is, too. <laughs> sure. Shakuhachi is a Japanese flute, basically. OK. Um, I think it's in Watson Genomics towards the end of it there's like a flute doing some rips and stuff on it and i i have to double check but i think it is in that queue um 
For Adam X10 and Finale, this is the boss here, final yeah. boss battle. And uh, it opens up with an ambient track. You know, you hear this when you first enter the boss scene. And the dialogue is pulled out from the boss battle. Um, when I made the soundtrack, again, 80s vibe, and I took a lot of heat for this. Um, <laughs> I had said I wanted to make a musical journey that wasn't just a score, right? I wanted it to be, I wanted you to feel the game. I wanted you to feel the story. You know, the, the music was placed in order of the environments and I wanted to put the dialogue to kind of take you through that. And I came up with that idea from listening to the original Blade Runner soundtrack, which oh. did that as well. You mm -hmm. have, yeah, and I just thought it was so cool, you know, so I wanted to do that here. Um, and I also thought that the the way they recorded the dialogue for Adam X10, just which is that's the character you're hearing in this track. I thought it was just so cool that it, when I laid it on top of the music and turned the lights off, it was super creepy. <laughs> and I just I had to do it. <laughs> um, so it starts out with an ambient track and then goes into a finale, which is essentially a metal, uh, a metal ballad yeah. version of the theme. And it's the first time in the game we hear the theme in its entirety, like full-length 16-bar melody type thing. Um, the, the note that I was given was this should feel sort of heroic and sort of hopeful and still with a level of intensity of, holy cow, this is the final boss battle. Everyone's trying to kill us, but you're there, you're at the end, you can do it. We wanted to encourage the player, not scare them. Happening to me. 
I've been so lost. Dad, is that really you? It is more than your father. His consciousness in purest form. I will give you a choice. Leave now with what you have. And I will give you your father, David. Stay, and I will destroy him. Adam X10 and Finale with a bit of dialogue by my guest Jeremy Tissa. And uh, one last question on that soundtrack. Uh, no, sorry. Well, it's kind of a two. I, I'm still intrigued by the credits. I haven't had a chance to listen to the entire <laughs> soundtrack, but I, I, but I want to go back and pick out all this stuff. So you've also got uh, additional music by Frederic Chopin in there somewhere. Um, is, that, is that a separate piece uh, or you, you, you riffing on some Chopin at some point in, this, in the OST? Well, I gave him a call and I asked him, no, I, uh, <laughs> there we, and this comes back to James being just musically brilliant on his own. 
we he decided that he wanted to have some contrast in the game, right? You, if you listen to the soundtrack itself, it's all just high intensity, heart pounding, orchestral sci-fi music. And so he wanted something that gives the player some contrast in the game. So he picked out, he personally picked out five Chopin piano nocturnes. Um, and those nocturnes were going to be used in the training sessions of the game. Uh, so where you learn how to fire the guns and the katanas and everything, we play these piano nocturnes. So that's where he chose them. Now, the hard part of this was he chose, I think, three or four of them are not in your standard piano repertoire. They're ones that Chopin has written. They're beautiful. And they're insanely challenging. And we had we called something like ten different pianists before we could find someone who was willing to touch them <laughs> and record oh, really? it. Huh. Yeah. And the other thing, the final thing that I want to ask you about, uh, you've also got the Maori hacker in there somewhere. Uh, <laughs> the, it is death. Is it is death? It is life. Is his life? I am the hairy man, etc., etc. <laughs> it's like you threw. You got a blaster beam. You got a shakuhachi. You got a didgeridoo. Uh, you got some Chopin, and you got the Haka in there as well. Amazing. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, the Haka, that was, oh, man, I've been so fascinated by by Hakas and Maori culture, and just all, I love all of it. You know, I think it's just so, every every culture around the world has something to offer. Um, and we went that road in Battle Lake as well with pulling from different uh cultural elements um we went with voodoo in battle wake so mm. there's some voodoo chanting cool. um but with the haka i'm not going to call it a haka i call it in um maori inspired haka because sure. it's you know it had to fit the game it had to fit the music um so i couldn't go as authentic with it as i really wanted but i have some friends from new zealand that really helped me research um the the vocals in there are actually a from a from maori culture miru of the renga it's it's uh it's a i believe it's a funeral poem that mm. is used the idea of it is that you're not supposed to fear death but yes respect it as a as the circle of life right and i thought that was just a really eerie play that just can really tie it in with the game where the robots they're not just trying to kill you they're trying to absorb your soul and so i have it feel like the robots are chanting this thing at you don't fear death don't be afraid which is part of the message that they're giving you throughout the whole game so the fact that i found that i was like oh man that sounds uh it's almost, i don't know if you're familiar with the game near automata there's uh there's some echoes of that in there also a 2017 game from a different origin obviously a japanese game but uh that's uh that's yeah some interesting echoes there i'll have to check it out that's an amazing soundtrack as well uh so our penultimate piece i checked and i thought we'd played this about 15 times but it's actually this will only be the third time we've played it in five years or whatever so uh, <laughs> uh so, but i mean it is a popular pick among composers uh, but in this case, I mean, it's one of my all-time favorites. It's one of the first pieces I ever played on this podcast. Um, and certainly, given that you, uh, Gary Scheiman was actually your teacher, uh, we couldn't have a more appropriate pick from you. Welcome to Rapture. Um, I mean, I just this is a special one for me, a special game. Um, so I'm just uh, hugely jealous that you got to uh, learn from the man himself. 
Yeah, Gary's Gary's been a part of my life in one way or another for a long time now. Um, he, I always tell him it, that me getting into VR like this is his fault, yeah. <laughs> and he laughs when I say that. Um, like he, I met him in the Cal State Summer Arts Program in California back in, I think it was 2010, 2009, 2010. He was a guest teacher for this two-week program. He came in for three days and we got to write some music that was supposed to fit the Bioshock world. Um, and this is when I was still kind of learning things about the, the art form. And that was where I first met him. And then I re-met him uh, when I went to USC. I went up to him and said, hey, Gary. And he looked at me and goes, I know you. And I said, yeah, from Cal State Summer Arts Program. And he goes, are you in my class? I said, I am. So, and then he's just kind of, you know, mentored me. We were his first uh, year teaching at USC. And then when I got the call for raw data, I called Gary first thing. And I said, Gary, I need help. <laughs> how do I price this? How do I, how does right. the contract work? What, what yeah. do I need to do with this stuff? The, and the, the admin, the business side. Yeah, exactly. And he spent about an hour on the phone with me, hour and a half. Oh, brilliant. Just, and every time I've ever had questions, he's always been one of my first calls. Uh, in the priceless. game world, yeah, yeah he's, priceless. Yeah, I love Gary to death. I can't say I can't. There's there's not enough good things in the world. Like I just love the guy. He's he's been one of my biggest supporters. And then when Raw Data went to GDC and we were on the GDC Expo floor, which was like you know big deal for me, my first project at GDC. He went and played the game and just couldn't stop talking about it for a while. <laughs> and it was just, you know, oh, such a good really feeling. Welcome to Rapture from, of course, Bioshock. We covered that on the Cane and Rinse podcast some time ago. Gary Scheiman there. Uh, forgive us, uh, Jeremy, if I may just bug you from time to time, see if we can get Gary on the show because he hasn't joined <laughs> us yet. Oh, um, he hasn't? No. I'll poke no. him for you. 
thank you. That would be a, a, a dream realised. Uh, one off the bucket list and all that. Uh, we've 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 ticked off quite a few, but uh, Gary's still one who's who's eluded us. So that would be ah. awesome. Sure. Uh, remember, listener, please venture over to our forum, canorince.com slash forum or Twitter. Follow us at canorince and request your favourites and other curios from the history of the video games, music, medium, and we'll continue to, to include a selection of those on the regular Sound of Play show. Please uh, subscribe to this podcast and our others. Leave us a review or a rating on Apple if you can or elsewhere, wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget our other podcast, Cana Rinse, that I've mentioned, where we review games, Playwright, where we invent games, and The Sausage Factory, where we interview developers. Those are Mondays, Thursdays, and Fridays, respectively. Follow us on social media. And if you appreciate the time and effort that goes into everything we do, we have a Patreon because it's 2019, patreon.com slash Cana Rinse. A dollar a month even is the minimum and that unlocks everything extended shows early shows extra podcasts and is greatly appreciated so before we hear about the final track and uh, the most recent game from the servio stable i want to thank jeremy tissa for joining me and uh, sharing so much about uh, history and some fascinating stories absolutely my pleasure thank you for having me got any uh, any social media or outlets you want to plug uh, feel free the floor is yours I do. Follow me on Twitter. I uh, believe I'll pull up my Twitter handle for you. It's just Jeremy Tisser. And on Instagram at JNT Music. Fantastic. And uh, the as we're going to hear a bit from it, of course, and we, we're going to talk about it and give it the big build up. But I notice also that the Battle Wake OST is available as a separate purchase on Steam and presumably elsewhere as well. So if you enjoy this upcoming piece, you can do that. Uh, as I always like to say, I've never been uh, never been briefed or held at gunpoint to say any of these things. I just think it's the right thing to do. So do check that out. Now, this piece, uh, I listened to this quite late last night and uh, it was and and again since I should say. But my first hearing was uh, it was a proper like, wow, this is going to be such fun um, to share with everybody air punching it's just and and just when when you think it's kind of reached peak kind of epicness and awesomeness it goes up another notch and then it does it again um this is a six minute piece and if this doesn't kind of leave you uh listener going away thinking maybe i should check out battle wake uh, i don't know what will so tell us please <laughs> about the game and this piece that we're gonna close the show and share with listeners Sure. So, uh, as I mentioned earlier, Battlewake is a pirate game in VR. You are standing at the helm of a pirate ship, and you're just steering around, and you can blow up ships, and there's a 20-chapter story mode, there's a multiplayer mode. Um, you can customize your ship and, you know, build it up. You can choose from four different characters. You can fire mortars off the back, machine gun off the front, ram other ships. You can release the Kraken. You can set off a Maelstrom water tornado. And it's just a really fun animated fantasy world pirate game. Um, and so this track was written for uh, one of the ice levels. Um, it features Eru Matsumoto on yeah. the solo cello. Um, if you don't know Eru, she is amazing she travels the world playing with different orchestras she plays game music concerts all over um i had the privilege of doing an arrangement for the anime expo a couple a few years ago and she was the feature self featured soloist um right 
playing in front of the orchestra and we connected on social media because of that. I hit her up and was like, Hey, you're, I saw your performance. It was great. And she goes, Oh, that was yours. That was your arrangement. And we, you know, we became friends from that. So this game, this track was inspired by, and going back to the world things, we had heard some Mongolian metal bands <laughs> and I had spent about six weeks trying to find a Marine Corps, which is essentially a Mongolian two string cello. Um, and no luck in Los Angeles. I couldn't find someone. I couldn't find um, a proper instrument that I could afford. So I ended up going with an Try electric Amazon? cello. <laughs> I did. It was, you know, for a good one, you're looking in, in a couple thousand. Um, and that, you know, so um, we ended up deciding electric cello because I could filter it. I could process it. I could put some distortion on it. Yeah. It could feel like a metal band, but be something different. Um, and we decided that we loved that upbeat feel from the Mongolian metal. And, uh, we incorporated some of the voodoo chanting and then we incorporated the main theme and this was a battle suite. So it was supposed to have peaks and valleys, uh, moments where it dies back down and it can be, it could build back up again. We could cut it into layers. We could cut it into sections with layers and be able to expand it in the game if we needed to. So that was the purpose behind it. And it flows. It has your intro, the very beginning when the percussion starts. That's kind of when you're setting off into a battle. And at the very end of the piece is supposed to be the boss battle section. Yeah. Um, but it's the track itself has different areas that can loop, that can expand. So it's six minutes. It can be turned easily into 45 minutes. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, it's would, one of my. <laughs> I think that would be fitting. I think forty-five minutes. Um, yeah, you could. You could that would. That would. That would work for me. Um, about nine times the, <laughs> the, the, <laughs> the default length. Um, talking about you were talking about the speed of the process earlier. How long did this piece take you to put together? Because to me, uh, again, as a as a non musically adept person, it sounds very intricate and uh, complex. Yeah, I, I'm fortunate with the VR stuff that I'm given more time to write uh than i am in the film world <laughs> you know in the yeah, film world yeah. i might have like six weeks for 90 minutes of music um if you're lucky with this i probably had a couple of weeks uh to really work on this track and uh get the, the instrumentation right i had like i said we had started with percussion where we just spent a day recording loops and grooves and that stuff so i had to chop those up piece them together create my sections choose where the melodies were going to go, what the instrumentations for those sections were. So this, this one took a lot of planning. Um, and then if you include all the time I spent recording soloists, recording the chanting, all that stuff, I probably spent a couple of weeks on this one. All um, right. And I got to say, uh, before we hear it and say goodbye, the, the thing that I want, the, the thing that I was imagining in my head, uh, I, I doubt probably um, actually happened because of the nature of how these things are put together. But I, am, I was imagining a live performance, like with everything, everything happening at once. And it sounded like I could, you know, I could sort of feel the energy of everyone playing this in a, in a live situation. Um, oh, I and I know that. some... I was going to say, I was like, is there, is there any possibility of, because I know a lot of, you know, a lot of game music tours and we get concerts nowadays and stuff like that. If you had the, 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 your star cellist, Mats, Matsumoto and, uh, and, and the, and the who's and the ha's and the rock guitar and the, 
the voodoo chanting and everything. Imagine all that. That would be that would be some concert. That would be great. If you know Tommy Tallarico and Video yes. Games Live, I would of love course. to get him to listen to this. <laughs> <laughs> uh, um, yeah, he's another guest we need to have. So um, well, we'll, we'll look in our little book, book <laughs> and uh, we'll play in this piece and say, yeah, Tommy. Um, well, thanks again so much, Jeremy, for joining us on Sound of Play. Thank you for having me. Should also say, because we've been talking about Vive and Rift, but, uh, but both Battlewake and Raw Data available on PSVR as well, which uh, I imagine more of our listeners actually have access to. So uh, you can check those out. Um, as I say, Battlewake, I haven't been able to play because I have no VR, but it looks like a kind of, if you can imagine Sea of Thieves crossed with Populous, crossed with Assassin's Creed 4 Black Flag, um, and a bit of Monkey Island in there as well. You're kind of, you're on the right... <laughs> <laughs> You're on the right sort of wavelength. So hopefully uh, you'll listen to this and go away and feel inspired to uh, to check it out further. Uh, enjoy Battle of the Frozen Bog. Bye, Jeremy. Thanks again. And we'll see you soon on Sound of Play. <laughs>